May Day doesn't happen only to be the day of the year, May 1st, and I'm recording this podcast. But also, unfortunately, it's a literal definition of a distress call and certainly how the world of college football does feel these days. Granted, I'll be talking a lot in this podcast about how it affects the Arizona State football program, but make no mistake about it, colleges all across the nation are feeling the adverse impacts of both the transfer portal and granting immediate eligibility for players who entered that database by May 1st, as well as even the much bigger issue of name, image, and likeness, or as it's known by its infamous acronym, NIL. There are a lot of current issues to discuss, so let's get this thing started. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies Podcast, and thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host and devilsdigest.com publisher, Hode Rubino. And even if you're the most optimistic person in nature out there, the warning signs that have existed for the last 12 or so months about the landscape of college football and how much it's going to change for the worse was really impossible to ignore, let alone overstate. And let's uh, walk through a quick timeline over here. April 14th, 2021, the NCAA decided that any player, or any, I should say, undergraduate player, Entering the transfer portal, a database that, by the way, did exist since 2018, so it's not a recent invention or what have you, would be granted a one-time exemption of having immediate eligibility at the new school of, of his choice. Now, as a reminder, once you do earn your degree, you can transfer to the school of your choice and be immediately eligible as long as you uh, do so with the coordinates of the academic calendar of the school that you want to transfer to, but you're not bound by any certain deadline. And as you probably know by now, that deadline for the undergraduate players who are entering the transfer portal for the first time to be immediately eligible is today, May 1st. Now, that decision already granted some cash to ensue, but the much more critical decision regarding college sports took place in the U.S. Supreme Court, no less, on June 29th of 2021, where a rare 9-0 unanimous decision by that body did legalize the name, image, and likeness, or NIL, for student-athletes, which simply means that NIL collectives for each and every school were permitted to compensate any student-athlete for their name, image, and likeness, promoting certain projects, businesses, etc. In other words, nothing more than just old-school advertising spokespeople. So some may wonder, how do we get here? And my answer may be something that would elicit some disagreement, but here's how I see the chain of events that led up to those two decisions. So when you look at the immediate eligibility clause of the transfer portal, I think the NCAA wanted to be modernized, for lack of a better term, and more athlete-friendly as they kept the hard-line amateurism stance that did eventually come back to bite them in a huge way in the form of the NIL, and I'll talk about that later. But when you look at the immediate eligibility transfer rule for undergraduate student-athletes, there's no doubt that, at least in my mind, when college football in specific, and maybe to a less extent college basketball, has seen the movement of head coaches and assistant coaches not staying in one school too long, regardless of their contract length, regardless of their buyouts, as they're just able to one day just pick up and leave immediately and work for another school, in most cases earning a pay raise in the process, that the student-athletes should not be penalized for that and really in turn should be able to do the same exact thing minus the compensation part, at least initially until NIL came into existence. But basically, if you're not restricting a movement of 
head coach X or assistant coach Y, why should you do the same for the, for the student athletes that obviously get impacted when their coaches do get to move often from one school to another? So maybe one could call this leveling the playing field, but again, the freedom that coaches, assistant coaches have to move from one school to another, basically at the drop of a pin and work at that school just a week or two later like nothing happened. I think the immediate eligibility rule, albeit a one-time exemption, was a move to maybe counter that trend of coaches hopping from one job to another. And as mentioned, you do have a stipulation that if you are transferring a second time before earning your degree, that you do have to revert to the old school model of sitting out a year unless you're granted a waiver by the NCAA. But truth be told that the NCAA has been, for the most part, giving out those waivers really freely. So I don't know if there's really that much of a deterrent for a player to think long and hard before they want to transfer for a second time before earning the degree, knowing that maybe at worst there's a 50-50 chance that they'll still be immediately eligible. So transfers, by and large, are done when a student-athlete is seeking greener pastures, and that color green is a pun intended, which was further enhanced by student-athletes being able to be compensated for the name, image, and likeness. And this is to say that it has quickly become a complete bidding war ever since last summer between the current school of a student-athlete and the schools that are seeking out that student-athlete to join their ranks. So yes, in theory, an athlete cannot be contacted by another school before they officially enter the transfer portal, but it's quite evident that there are more than enough third parties and intermediaries and people that have enough of a plausible deniability on their side to start the process days, if not weeks, before a student officially enters the transfer portal. So if you thought that tampering is something that college sports was immune from, especially compared to professional sports, think again. Now, you have that, that aforementioned transfer portal rules going hand-in-hand with the NIL rules, and it's impossible to overstate how devastating this has been for college sports. And more importantly, how much more clearly defined is the line between the have and have-nots in college sports. Now, these rules did have some effect in 2021 calendar year, but just because they were really novel at the time, and in some respects, maybe the gloom and doom predictions that were stated back then last summer were more applicable for the 2022 calendar year, and that's exactly what has happened. And you can look no further than the last couple weeks of April to see where the vast majority of teams concluded their spring practices, and that May 1st deadline that I mentioned was fast approaching, and schools were compelled to go full-blown tampering and seeking out the players that did have the NIL leverage that were seriously considering transferring out simply to pad their bank accounts like never before. Now, I want to make it perfectly clear that, first of all, not each and every student-athlete in the portal was doing so for NIL reasons, and I'll discuss that a little later in the podcast. But generally speaking, just like you can't blame any professional out there in the business world moving from one job to another due to financial gain, I cannot criticize a student-athlete for doing the same, especially when you have cases at Arizona State and elsewhere for that matter of student-athletes who definitely do not come from advantageous financial situations, and they come from families that definitely could use a new income stream for for their financial survival. Now, 
if you listen to me talk about this topic before, I know this might sound very repetitive, but I truly believe that if revenue sports student athletes, just like football, years and years ago, would receive a higher stipend than student athletes of non-revenue sports, then the landscape that was so ripe for the NIL to take place may have not existed because you don't have the NCAA being greedy, being out of touch, however you want to phrase it, and thinking that a stipend of a college football player should be the same amount as a stipend for a women's tennis or women's volleyball player because, after all, those women's sports, more times than not, are definitely financially supported by the football student-athletes. Now, one thing I do want to make clear, I am definitely not a sexist or discriminating person by any means, but at the same time, you do have economic realities that, just like they exist out there in the business world, should also exist in college sports. So I'm a proponent of Title IX that established the fact that there should not be discrepancy between the number of female scholarship student-athletes and male scholarship student-athletes. I am 100% okay with that legislation not changing when you just talk about the mere number of scholarships. Nonetheless, ultimately, there has to be some common sense that has to kick in when it comes to the financial aspects of that Title IX. And if some way, somehow, a women's sports did actually become a revenue sports, then absolutely that stipend of that sport should equal that of football and at the very least be more of a stipend compared to other women's sports that are not considered revenue sports. So for example, if you take University of Connecticut, this is obviously a program that has a women's basketball team that is well endowed, that brings in millions if not tens of millions every year. I have no problem of the stipends of those women basketball players in UConn being the same as the football program in UConn. And I'm assuming the football program in UConn is not really siphoning funds off of the women's basketball program and are able to uh, generate their own revenue. So the NCAA ultimately decided to die in that hill called amateurism, which is very ironic because it's also the same institution that did implement the immediate eligibility element of the transfer portal, showing, at least on the surface, that they are willing to keep with the times and be more student-athlete friendly. But the NIL creation is a blatant and really devastating example of how the NCAA's insistence on being old-fashioned has greatly hurt the college of sports, maybe to the point of no return. So it's important to bring up the background of those two aspects before I specifically talk about Arizona State, its football program, which unfortunately has much bigger fish to fry down the road as it is, and examine how the transfer portal and the immediate eligibility element of it, as well as NIL, have at least on the surface, devastated the football program right here, right now. So when it comes to players from the ASU football program that entered the transfer portal, you definitely have to make the distinction between the players that were starters over here that do have what I like to call the NIL leverage, okay? So when you look at a player like Eric Gentry, who within a week from entering the transfer portal has uh, signed with USC, you know that there's a pretty fat NIL agreement that that goes with it. You take defensive tackle Jermaine Lole, who entered the transfer portal uh, just uh, last night, 
And he's someone that also can command a very nice NIL deal, even though he did not play all of last year due to tricep surgery, but nonetheless is somebody who has a proven body of work and enough built-up cachet that even though he did not play all of last year, is still a very sought-out commodity. And look, I don't blame somebody like Lole or Gentry entering the transfer portal if it is merely just to better their financial situation. I don't even blame other players that might claim to the media that the decision has nothing to do with NIL when those same exact players actually sought out better NIL deals uh, months and months before before they entered the transfer portal. And again, it all comes down to the leverage that you have. And if you're a proven player at ASU, if you're somebody who led ASU in some categories or just, again, just has a body of work that is attractive to other programs out there, there has to be an NIL incentive over and above maybe some other reasons why you do choose to leave Arizona State. And on the flip side, there are some players that simply were not going to see the field or barely see the field over here in 2022. So might as well go into the transfer portal and seek out a team that is not going to better your NIL financial situation at all in some cases, but at least you get to play on Saturdays. So sometimes a decision to enter the transfer portal can be as pragmatic as that. And in some situations, like I said, money does speak like many aspects in our lives. And that's an undeniable fact, even by the folks who try to deny that same exact issue. Because as the old saying goes, when people tell you it's not about the money, you can bet your bottom dollar that it's all about the money. But Let's move on. So when it does come to the influx of the players in the transfer portal, I know the immediate question that a lot of ASU fans are thinking is that the NCAA investigation into the alleged recruiting violations by Arizona State, an investigation that dating back to last summer has caused four assistant coaches to either resign or be fired. And you have a fifth assistant coach, Antonio Pierce, that did leave for the NFL not only because he was sought after at that level and probably getting a pay raise out of this as well, but also somebody that did not want to stick around if he had better options to see what the future does hold in Tempe. So I think it would be foolish to say that the NCAA investigation had no bearing whatsoever on any of the players that entered the portal from Arizona State. Maybe it affected some compared to other players, I'm sure when it comes to the negative recruiting element of the tampering that that NCAA investigation was coming up early and often by the schools who were pursuing the ASU players who were thinking about entering the portal or maybe even compelled to enter the portal, not only because of the NIL aspect, but also because of the NCAA investigation. That is definitely an element that should not be ignored in this slew of players that did enter the transfer portal. But again, I feel that each and every player should be judged by their own merits, if you will, as to why they entered the transfer portal. And again, if player X or player Y was slated to be a starter 
2022 for the Sun Devils, then NIL definitely played a huge factor at the very least, if not being really the sole responsible factor for them entering the NIL. If player was, was supposed to be a reserve, was having very dim chances of seeing the field in 2022, then NIL played very little, if any, reason in them entering the, entering the portal. It's anyone's guess how ASU is going to be able to really replenish all those losses effectively by going into the portal and getting players that, if not, are going to be an apples-to-apples replacement in terms of caliber, maybe minimize the drop-off. And time will tell if that will or will not happen. But I know that a lot of ASU fans have been lamenting for weeks now, what does this mean for Herm Edwards, ASU's head football coach? What does this mean for Ray Anderson, the athletic director, and really calling for their heads because of this influx of players, many of them key players, that are entering the transfer portal. So here's where I come out on this. I think that any calls for the dismissal of Herm Edwards and Ray Anderson really should be based on the NCAA investigation itself, okay? After all, these allegations did come under Herm Edwards' watch. The fact that four assistant coaches directly had to either resign or be fired because of those allegations, because of the evidence that the NCAA has compiled to date, should really merit the dismissal of Herm Edwards and Ray Anderson, who really vouched for Herm Edwards. Now, why hasn't that happened until now? Ultimately, ASU does not want to pay one red cent to either Herm Edwards and Ray Anderson upon their dismissal, whether it's a firing or resignation by one or both individuals. So you have to have the paper trail, the same exact paper trail that did cause the dismissal of Adam Brenneman, Chris Hawkins, Prentice Gill, and Zach Hill. That same paper trail has to exist connecting Herm Edwards to all these allegations. As we sit here on May 1st, no current staff member at Arizona State, including Herm Edwards, including Ray Anderson for that matter, have been interviewed regarding these recruiting allegations, okay? Now, some may argue that this can happen in the next few months leading up to August's fall camp. Some will argue that the interviews are probably going to take place much later in the calendar year, may not even take place until 2023. The fact that that paper trail against Herm Edwards is not rock solid when it comes to proving his involvement in those recruiting violation allegations, ASU really can't take any action in terms of dismissal without buying out his contract. And the same thing exists with Ray Anderson. If you're going to have multiple level one violations, when the notice of allegations does come out by the NCAA, then you can point to a dismissal, or I'm sorry, termination of employment due to cause. So ASU won't pay anything to Herm Edwards. ASU won't pay anything to Ray Anderson. My opinion is that once the notice of allegations is going to come out, that there will be grounds for dismissal for a cause for those two individuals. 
But until that notice of allegations is presented by the NCAA to ASU, something that I believe is going to take place either very late in this calendar year, if not in the first quarter of 2023, ASU, namely University President Michael Crow's hands, are tied in terms of making any personnel decision concerning one or both individuals. And yes, I'm not oblivious to the fact that once Herm Edwards is dismissed, again, whether it's resignation, whether it's firing, that's immaterial at this point, that it's going to be hard for an athletic director such as Ray Anderson to be the one to make the next hire for ASU's football head coach. I mean, you're really having to have an interim head coach, likely a current staff member, instead of Ray Anderson, who, following the dismissal of Herm Edwards, is going to be on very tenuous ground, to say the least, and definitely not in a position for any high-caliber head football coach candidate out there wanting to work for Arizona State, knowing that the athletic director, in this case, Ray Anderson, who's going to be the individual hiring him, could be gone within 12 months or less from a potential hire to the Sun Devils. So ASU is really between a rock and a hard place, and that's putting it mildly when it comes to the futures of Herm Edwards and Ray Anderson, and when does that dismissal, when does that termination of employment take place? Because at the end of the day, ASU wants to cover itself legally. I mean, people don't realize that the number of lawsuits, not only sports-related, but just in any walk of life, that comes against ASU on a daily, on a weekly basis is really astounding. So you got a school... And, and really, it's no different than any colleges across the country. I shouldn't make that point. I'm not, not not saying it's good or bad. It is what it is. But you can rest assured that a school like ASU, anytime they do make a, pers- a personnel decision or thinking about making a personnel decision, that they're making sure that all their I's are dotted and T's are crossed from a legal standpoint. Again, some may not agree with this answer, but if anybody is saying, how come Ray Anderson still has a job? How come Herm Edwards still has a job? Well, first of all, if you are basing that question on NIL, on the transfer portal and the number of key players that ASU lost, then I'm telling you that you need to look way back to last summer when the news about the NCAA investigation into ASU into alleged recruiting violations took place. And to me, if you're going to dismiss those two individuals, that should be the reason. What happens with the NIL, what happens with the transfer portal, to me, that is much lesser of an aspect in determining if one of those two individuals still have a job. Now, another reason I'm stating this is that the university administration... Michael Crow, the university president, rather than Ray Anderson, the athletic department, were absolutely slow moving on the NIL. They were absolutely reactive and not proactive to the landscape of college sports, college football in specific, and did not facilitate the creation of the NIL collective soon enough 
to perhaps prevent a Jaden Daniels or an Eric Gentry actually entering the portal, knowing that those are examples of two individuals that were about to get a sweeter NIL deal than they could ever get at ASU. But if you just look at the timeline here, okay, if ASU had an NIL collective established back in January, maybe even as late as February, okay, they can identify key players like Jaden Daniels, like Eric Gentry, like Ricky Parasol, like Jermaine Lolay, that you could theorize would be poached at one point or another by another school due to an NIL deal, you can present an NIL deal that they may see as attractive, they may see as lucrative. And the key point is that any NIL collective deal that is signed with a player obviously has a clause in that contract that the player has to exhaust their eligibility with the school. So let's say if an NIL deal was signed with Eric Gentry saying that you can transfer to another school and now strike an NIL deal with the school that you transfer to. You're either staying here at ASU for the duration of your college career with his exhausting eligibility or declaring early for the NFL draft. But if you, for example, Eric Gentry is signing an NIL deal with ASU in February, okay, and, you know, here comes end of April after spring practice ends and USC wants to sign you for an NIL deal, they're not going to be able to do that. You can transfer and play for USC. That's fine. The ASU NIL collective is the one that has your NIL rights. You cannot strike a new NIL deal with the school that you transfer to, whether it be USC or anywhere else in the country. So the bottom line here is that if you want to be mad at Ray Anderson, if you want to be mad at Herm Edwards, I think that the root of your anger towards those two individuals has to be rooted with what took place with the recruiting violation allegations. Again, I'm not saying that no of the 16 players that did put themselves in the transfer portal from ASU going back to the end of last season, that the NCAA investigation had no bearing on their decision. That, that would be, again, foolish to say. However, in many cases, like an Eric Gentry, like a Jaden Daniels, like a Jermaine Lolay, there was a NIL incentive that has caused those players to enter the portal and the school that they signed with ultimately presented them an NIL that was going to be better than anything they're going to get here at ASU. Now, I do applaud the NIL collective that has formed at ASU. And to be clear, I mean, there's one master NIL collective and there might be also some smaller NIL collectives that may act independently, may be absorbed into the bigger NIL collective and it's all said and done. But what I want to make clear is that from what I know, I'm not putting the fault of the ASU boosters that are forming the NIL for acting late. Because I think that at the end of the day, Michael Crow and the university administration should have been more reactive when it comes to the formation of the NIL collective. Now, sure, I'll just put out there as a disclaimer, technically a school cannot have any contact, any communication with the formation of an NIL collective. And once that NIL collective is formed, the school really cannot facilitate 
any action by any means. That is an absolutely toothless law, okay? Because you can rest assured that in 95%, and that's a conservative number of the NL collectors that are out there, that the school administration, again, through back channels, through communication that always has a plausible deniability attached to it, are definitely communicating with those NIL collectives, basically saying, here's what we need with player X, here's what they need with recruit Y, that even hasn't signed with the school yet, but we want to go ahead and be proactive and get the deal going over here so it would behoove that recruit to ultimately sign with our school. I mean, those conversations are taking place on every day of the week ending with the Y. And, and I'm sure they're going to take place here at ASU, which is perfectly okay because at this point, you have to fight fire with fire. And you can rest assured that the collectives at USC and Oregon and all over the Pac-12 and all over Power 5 landscape are being conducted in that manner, where the schools and the NAL collectives, even though legally on paper cannot talk to each other, are absolutely communicating with each other. I think this ASU NAL collective will be successful in the long run. But needless to say that this NCAA investigation cloud that's hanging over the program might make the road much bumpier now and a road that should, in theory, be smoothed out once ASU is past all the sanctions that the NCAA is going to levy on itself, once the program has a new athletic director or a new head football coach in place, that the NAL can be even more effective than it would be in its beginning stages later on this year. So there definitely are some challenges ahead. But it's good to see this collective coming to fruition very soon. I think this collective can still have maybe some impact on players that ASU wants to land out of the transfer portal. And ultimately, I think you really have to applaud the individuals that are really pouring in their time and their money into this collective when the program, as we mentioned, is really on tenuous ground right now. You really can't say the prospects of the 2022 season are any great right here, right now. Sure, I mean, maybe some key additions from the transfer portal can somewhat change that perception, but there's no doubt that ASU lost some major firepower when you have guys like Jaden Daniels, Ricky Paracel, Eric Gentry, potentially Jermaine Lolay, as we know, there's a chance that he might actually stay at Arizona State. When you have players like that leave the program, you really have to make sure that you're able to replace a same level type of player from the portal. Easier said than done. ASU is obviously not the only school seeking uh, diamonds in, in the portal, if you will. So in some respects, the jury still may be out as to how ASU can replenish that talent that left the program. But realistically speaking, it's hard to imagine that player for player in terms of impact players that left the program can be replaced with the same level of impact players coming into the program. So I hope this podcast has given some ASU fans a clearer picture of how the transfer portal in NIL has affected ASU specifically, how it really even came to fruition in the world of college sports. And I can't blame anybody for being pessimistic of the immediate future, not only of ASU football, but college football in general. And time will tell if that perception can somehow be more optimistic 
a few months from now or maybe this time next year. One thing I can guarantee you that myself and my staff at Devil's Digest will bring you all the updates as it concerns the football team both on and off the field. So if you haven't uh, subscribed to my website, I would encourage you definitely to do so. We definitely go into much deeper discussions than I can in a 30-plus minute podcast. The website is devilsdigest.com. would love to have you be part of the Devil's Huddle, our premium uh, message board. And you can always follow me at Twitter, at Devil's Digest. Thank you again so much for tuning in, and I hope you have a great week. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.